Well, good morning. Are we on? I think we are. There we go. Okay, handouts in the back. And so what I did was I printed out a few from last week. If you need one from last week, there's one back there. And then there's, there's ones for today as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word and for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that all history marches to your tune. You're, you accomplish your purposes. There's no one who can thwart what you desire to accomplish. And you control everything, even sin. And so today as we're looking at, again, um, the millennial kingdom, I pray that you would help us to, to have clear understanding of your word and that we would glory in the events that are to come that are still yet future for us. How we long for these days, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked at the idea of amillennialism and post-millennialism. So post-millennialism is the idea that Jesus returns when relative to the millennium. Okay, now, in softball, that's called a real slow pitch. Post-millennial means Jesus comes after the millennial kingdom. So the millennial kingdom is now, and post-millennialism is the idea that um, there's going to be a golden age uh, that's characterized by righteousness and peace that before Jesus comes back. Then amillennialism is the idea, not that there's no millennial kingdom, that's where the, the term is probably a little not entirely accurate, but they would hold that we are in the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is a period of time where Satan is bound and uh, he is unable to hinder the spread of the gospel. And then at some point, then, there's, uh, then Jesus is going to return. Amillennialism is probably the most common view of the millennial kingdom. Um, and you're going to find that uh, typically if you have a reformed church, uh, they will often hold to an amillennial view. Now, why might that be? Reformed churches, where do they get their name? Going back to the Reformation, going back to the Reformers, you had a... Um, and so, when you... Um, Andrew? I was just Well, covenantal falls into the same thing. Uh, and so what happens is, is that when you go back to the reformers and you're looking at the views that the reformers held, thinking again that this is in the 14, 15, 16, 1700s, most of those, uh, most of the reformers held that uh, Israel had basically forfeited their promises given them by God in the Old Testament and what would be the evidence for that belief? Yeah, the Jews had been out 
of the, of the nation, not since 70 AD. 70 AD is when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was raised. But absolutely since 135 AD, that was uh, the Barb Kabka rebellion. And basically the Romans came in and said, that's it, we've had it with you folks. And so they evicted all of the Jews out of Israel and they renamed it. So, and it had been that way now, you know, from 135, by the time you get into the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, the years keep passing, the centuries keep passing, and there's no such place as Israel. And so, in some ways, you can see how someone could begin to look at it that way. So, um, we had some interesting conversations last week after class and something that is worth going into here. Just because there is a difference in view, a difference in perspective, doesn't mean that somebody who holds a different perspective, anything that they think you need to reject, that's not true at all. Now, post-millennialism, I believe that that is a flawed view. I, personally, I do. Yet, post-millennial people tend to be very evangelistic because they're trying to alter society for Christ. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not. And in fact, sometimes those folks are a whole lot more evangelical as far as in carrying the message and being vocal about their faith than we are. And so again, don't, uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so um, that's, again, and then another thing that came out, how do you measure success? Don't ever try to measure success by results. Talk to me about Jonah. What was Jonah's gospel to Nineveh, if you can call it that? What was his message to Nineveh? Basically, right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the message. And the people turn. And yet you have Noah who preaches for 120 years while he's building the ark. And after 120 years, how many people are in the ark with him? There's a total of eight people in that ark. And so, uh, and in fact, in Ezekiel, uh, God says, listen, I, I believe the, three, the trio was Moses, Noah, and Daniel. If those three stood before me, interceding for you, they'd save themselves. So again, don't measure success of a ministry by results. Measure it by faithfulness. Are the people faithfully preaching the word? 
Are they faithfully living the word? And if those things are true, that's a faithful ministry. Andrew? It means they were being faithful and there was no reason for them to be rejected. It doesn't mean that they were getting work salvation. It simply means that they were being faithful but they wouldn't be able to convince anybody else to come with them because the other people were so corrupted. They weren't gonna hear the truth. Didn't matter who was gonna preach it to them. That's the idea. And so, and again, have you ever had a conversation with somebody where all of a sudden, they take something away from the conversation. You look at it and you go, I wasn't even trying to make that point. Right? And that can happen in a good way, and it can happen in a bad way. Right? Because somebody is taking... So again, when it comes to ministry, be faithful in the message. And take away the good things from people in what they stand for. So, that's amillennialism and post millennialism. So today we're going to try to catch the other two. The third one, we aren't going to spend a whole lot of time on. That's called historic premillennialism. And it is probably one of the most confusing of the four. Probably is the most confusing of the four. Because they claim to be premillennial. They, they, they would be premillennial. The way that they look at the book of Revelation is that chapter 19 and the events of chapter 19 precede chapter 20 and the events of chapter 20. And so they would take that chronologically, which means in chapter 19, Jesus, you have the second coming in chapter 19. And chapter 19, uh, in chapter 20, you have, in, in verses 1 to 7, you have the millennial kingdom. So the second coming must come before the millennial kingdom. And most of them would say that it is literally a thousand years. Where they get, uh, where things get different is they're not sure what the millennial kingdom is going to be like and they're not sure exactly who all is going to be in it and because for them the church is spiritual Israel. They do not draw any distinctions between the church and, is, and national ethnic Israel. And so, uh, for them, the millennial kingdom is not about Israel. If it's not about Israel, then you have to figure then, well, what is it about? And if it's not about Israel, you don't have a lot in the Bible to go on as to what the millennial kingdom would actually be for if it's not about Israel. Now, this isn't in your notes. Let's just talk about this real briefly. What constitutes a kingdom? I'm sorry, it has to have what? Got to have a king. You got to have subjects. You got to have a territory, and the other, the, the fourth. Uh, sometimes they don't put in territory. They'll put in that there has to be effective rule. There has to actually be the relationship between the king and the subjects. 
if the millennial kingdom is not about God fulfilling his promises to national Israel, where they are back in their land, and it is as he had designed it for them to be, then what's it about? Are there any passages in scripture that tell you that the church has got land promises? Is there a land that has been promised to the church? Okay, there's heaven, but really, even heaven, what is promised? It's being in the, exactly, it's being in the presence of God, right? We are, Jesus is preparing mansions for us, dwelling places for us, so that we may be with him forever. So the promise is really Christ and being with him, being in his presence. There's no promise of a particular geographic location. <laughs> okay, so I know that some of you ladies are studying in Kings and Chronicles, and I think you may have had a lesson about this. What is a, what is a passage, it's Second Chronicles 7.14 to be exact, what is 2 Chronicles 7.14? I know a lot of you have got it memorized. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. I may have forgotten something in there. But the idea is, is that there's forgiveness and there is national uh, regional peace. So, who was Second Chronicles 7.14 written to? Israel. So I have Israel. Anybody want to say that it is a general overlapping promise? Okay, a good idea. What's the problem with it? Do you know that there is a branch of Christendom that would hold that not only is the church new Israel, America is the new Israel. You ever heard that one? Oh, it is bad. It is bad. So again, because there are specific promises made by God going back to Abraham that the people are going to have this land is for your people. Now, can the people be separated from the land? Absolutely. 
because the Mosaic covenant was conditional. Obey me and be blessed. Disobey me and be cursed. In fact, when you go back to the law, going all the way back to Leviticus, and then restated in Deuteronomy, God makes it very clear to them that when you rebel, I'm going to do a number of things, increasing pressure in order to bring you to the point of repentance. But the day is gonna come when you continually rebel, you continually rebel, and I'm gonna kick you out of the land. It's going to happen. And then when you're in that faraway land, and you come to your senses, and you seek for me with all your heart, I'll bring you back. Now, has that already happened? Boy, I, got, I see a bunch of people going, well, yes, but no. You know, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? Were the people exiled from the land? Did all of them come back? No. The northern kingdom has never gone back. That's why they're called the ten lost tribes. They've never been home. Judah came back, some, but never as the kingdom that they were when they were exiled. There has never been a Jewish king since the exile. They've always been under somebody else's thumb. And so, again, so in one way, yes, that has happened, partially. There is still coming a day when that is going to happen completely. And in fact, that's what the tribulation's about. So, historic premillennialism, yeah, Jesus is going to come back before the millennium, but uh, we're not sure what the millennium is going to look like, and it's all about the church anyway. So that is historic premillennialism. Now we're to the handout for today. So dispensational premillennialism. And what I've written out here for you is these are the defining characteristics of this particular view, all right? Number one, the hermeneutic that's used to interpret scripture is the literal, and probably a better word for that would be normal or plain. Normal, grammatical, historical. Why normal instead of literal? Literal. Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part of me. So can you see why with a verse like that, allegations would be made in the first century that Christians were cannibals and they practiced cannibalism. Now, did Jesus mean literally, just like uh, who was the crime dog, McGruff, taking a bite out of crime? Unless you take a bite out of Christ. 
Is that what Jesus was trying to communicate? That you need to physically eat my flesh? There are some who think so, yeah. Is that what he was trying to communicate? No. Now, I heard a pretty vociferous no. How do you know? Okay, so he's not here. And this is my body. So in the upper room in the Last Supper, Andrew. Okay, you just used the word figurative. And so, and I'm gonna take that word figurative and tweak it just a little bit to come up with a, with a common term that we are all familiar with, a figure of speech. So what kind of a figure of speech would eat my flesh and drink my blood be? Metaphor would be one possibility. What would be another one? I'm thinking about hyperbole. You're vastly overstating something in order to make a point. So for instance, when uh, Jesus says, uh, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your foot offends you, cut it off. So are we all supposed to be limping around with one hand and one eye answering by stumpy? Is that what he's getting at? What is he getting at? So again, taking drastic measures in order to fight against sin, right? So again, he's using hyperbole. That's a figure of speech. A metaphor would be another figure of speech. Often with uh, the Old Testament prophets, God would order them to do something that would be a picture to somebody else. Hosea was to marry a prostitute. Ezekiel, God killed Ezekiel's wife. And he was not to mourn for her even though she was dear to him. Because Ezekiel was to be a picture to the people. And so the idea of normal is take it because words have meaning. And in fact, why is it that you can, you can speak of something using a metaphor? Why is that even possible? Okay, because we have imaginations, uh, there's another part to that. Culture? And they understand the, 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 the literal sense of 
they understand the actual meaning of the term. The actual term has meaning. When you take that and you apply it to something else, that's what makes a metaphor work. If every time somebody says something and they, and they, use, a simple, they use a term and you're in your mind trying to go back and say, well, there's a meaning behind the meaning here, all of a sudden you're turning things into what sense does the language have? Okay, so let's go with that for just a second. If somebody uses a metaphor, who's determining the use of the metaphor? The author. The author controls the interpretation when a metaphor is used. That's the author. I don't get to go in and assign whatever meaning I would like. So for instance, if you go to a Bible study and, and the question is asked, you know, what does this mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to me. That doesn't matter at all. What matters is, what did the author intend? What did God intend when that was used? So again, the idea here is you, you're using, you're taking words in their normal or plain usage, recognizing that there will be symbols. So for instance, we're gonna be studying here in the book of Revelation, and sooner or later, we're gonna run into this beast that's got seven heads and 10 crowns. So am I to be looking, are we to be looking for some guy over in the Middle East who's got seven heads and 10 crowns on them. Is that what we should be looking for? If anybody says yes to that, right? So, is, so what would that be? That would be a symbol. That's a symbol that is picturing something. Then the idea is, okay, now what can we look for to identify what that might be? And by the way, the seven heads and the 10 crowns, where does that harken back to? Is Revelation the only place where we find that? Oh, now you go back to Daniel. And what was present in Daniel? An explanation as to what that was, okay? Say that, I'm sorry. Yeah, and so again, the idea here is that many times what we're gonna run into is that when there's a symbol that's used or there's a metaphor that's used, there's also going to be an accompanying explanation as to what that means. So you're not just left to your imagination. We've talked about this before. What's the purpose of Revelation? It's to reveal. It's to make something known that has previously been hidden. In the New Testament, there's a term that's used. Seven times, I believe. Mystery. 
And that word is actually a transliteration of the Greek word, musterion. And again, a mystery, a biblical mystery, is something that has been previously hidden, but is now made known. So when we read this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is that something that's meant to be confusing? Or is it meant to be unveiling? You use the rules of grammar, you use syntax, use the historical meanings of words. How did the original audience understand the meaning of this term? And that is important, by the way. And we should recognize that from our own language. When I was little, if I heard anybody described as sick, then they were ill. Now, apparently, they're, they're, they're really rad. There's all kinds of terms that all of a sudden take on an entirely different meaning and sometimes the opposite meaning from what the word originally was. Secondly, progressive revelation. God didn't reveal everything at once. And something else that's important. God doesn't reveal everything about a topic at once. So for instance, let's talk about the first advent. Was Jesus' birth prophesied ahead of time? Yeah, hundreds of years ahead of time, right? So can you take me to a specific passage that would say who his parents were going to be, where he was going to be born, general ideas to when he was going to be born, and the, the, uh, the fact that his mom was going to be a virgin? Can you find all of that in one place? No, you can't. You can't. Because it wasn't revealed that way. The virgin birth is foretold in Isaiah. His birthplace of Bethlehem foretold in Micah. The slaughter of the, of the babies in Bethlehem by Herod the Great foretold. The timing, the general timing of his birth foretold. You get that, you would get that in Daniel with the 69 weeks. And at least that gets to when he's going to be cut off and you'd have to come back a little bit. How many times is it foretold where Jesus was going to be born? Where? The, the, the geographic location. It's in Micah. And how many are there? There's one. That Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. How many times was that told? The slaughter of the innocents. How many times was that foretold? Were they fulfilled? How were they fulfilled? Yeah, literally. Was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes. Was he born of a virgin? Yes. Did Herod come in and wipe out all the babies in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus? Yes. All of those things happened. 
So the fact that something is only mentioned once does not make it irrelevant, nor does it make it questionable. And we've got all kinds of prophecies that we can look at just like that. So the fact that something isn't talked about all in one place and fully explained in one place. It wasn't even done that with Daniel when he was being told, you know, here's what the visions are. There were still things with Daniel that, exactly how does that work? And so again, God doesn't spill everything at once. So when it comes to the millennial kingdom, where can you find in the Old Testament the millennial kingdom? Anybody know? Ezekiel 40 to 48 is extensive, it's the most extensive treatment of the millennial kingdom in the Bible. And yet, what, what, what will you not find in Ezekiel 40 to 48, those nine chapters? There's something you will not find. Yeah, there's no reference to the length of it. None. None. Where do you get a thousand years? Well, you get it from Revelation chapter 20. And just to go there real quick, do numbers matter? Can a number be symbolic? Okay, give me a symbolic number that we've already encountered in the book of Revelation. Seven, specifically seven what's? Seven churches, seven lampstands, the seven spirits of God. You know, does God have seven spirits? No. The idea there is that it's the completeness, it's the totality of it. So absolutely there are numbers that can be symbolic. Uh, the number three. What does three mean? You know what three means? One more than two, one less than four. Okay? That's what three means. And you can try and, you know, perhaps you could come up with something, well, you know, it can also, you know, and, and again, and I'm not saying that, you know, seven is an idea of completion. But then, so again, is the number 10. There are numbers that show up a lot in the Bible. 10 shows up a fair amount. 70 shows up. So again, there may be a tie in, in the type of the number that's used, but at the, you know, first you gotta look and say, I, is the number being given? Because that's the actual number. That's the actual amount. And what's going to tell you if it's an actual amount? Say it, I know you know it. 
Context, absolutely. That's where you go through and how, how do I understand this? So, literal or normal or plain, grammatical, historical interpretation, progressive revelation. The third characteristic of uh, dispensational premillennialism is it maintains a distinction between the church and national Israel. Now, is there a distinction between Israel and the church in heaven? Talk to me <clears throat> about the gates and the foundation for the walls in the New Jerusalem. How many gates are there? Twelve gates. And there's names written on those gates, and those names belong to? The twelve tribes of Israel. And the foundation for the wall is made of twelve stones. And on those 12 stones are written the names of the 12 apostles. Yeah, 12. <laughs> I, I don't know. <clears throat> Sam asked, who's the 12th? And I have no idea. Here, here is where this is the primary difference between somebody who is a dispensational premillennialist and the one who's the historic premillennialist or the ah-mill or the post-mill. Dispensational premillennialism is the only view that maintains a distinction between the church and Israel. And here's how they do it. The church, according to Paul, the church was a mystery that has been revealed in the, in the first century. And you'll see um, that the Gentiles were going to be fellow heirs and that you were going to have this group that was a new group. And there's no other way to cut this than to look at um, what does every New Testament on believer have. In fact, if you don't have this, you are not a son of God. If you do not have the spirit of God, you do not have him. So every believer from Pentecost on has got the, whole, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Did that happen in the Old Testament? Was that same saying that same statement true in the Old Testament. No, it wasn't. And in fact, in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came on you, what happened? In fact, this is what Samuel said to Saul. The Holy Spirit is gonna come upon you and what was gonna be the evidence of that? You are gonna be a different man, exactly. The Holy Spirit cannot indwell you and not change you. That cannot happen. So that's why you can examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Am I being fundamentally transformed into the image of Christ? 
not all at once, but progressively. Can someone look at my life and see this man is different than he used to be? If you don't see that kind of change, you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. Because that is, and that those two things, the Holy Spirit living in somebody and there being absolutely no transformation, that can't happen. That cannot happen. And so there's no question that God changed how he dealt with people between the Old Testament and the New Testament and today. Does that mean that there were two different types of salvation? No. Why was Abraham credited with righteousness? He believed what God told him. He believed. He took God at his word. Gunner? Well, belief, okay, again, biblical belief is always characterized by what? Action. Biblical belief is always characterized by action. Uh, the demons believe. The demons know who Jesus is. They believe and they tremble. Why? They don't bow the knee, right? So knowledge isn't it. Emery? Sure. So the idea here, there is a term that is often used with this, and it's called supersessionism. Big fancy word. I guess so, so you can use one word instead of using half a dozen or a dozen. The idea of supersessionism, super in place of session, it's the idea that the church has replaced. Israel. Israel no longer has the blessings and those have passed on to the church. So if you see supersessionistic, then that's holding that view. So if you believe that there is a distinction, then you're going to see the term non-supersessionistic. Kind of, yeah, never mind, I won't go there. Now, okay, so where do they get this? Did Jesus offer the kingdom to the Jews when he was walking here on earth? Yes, he did. What was their response? Yeah, no, we will not have you to rule over us. And what happened as a result, ultimately, of that rejection. Well, it went to the Gentiles, but what happened to them? Oh, you know, another hundred years and there was no Israel. And they're out of the land. And they were out of the land for 1,800 years and change. So 
the idea behind so the church inheriting that is because the Gentiles, because the, the, the church did turn to Christ. They repented. They were saved. So the idea is, is that because they were the ones who answered the call, that they get to inherit the blessings. So the idea that dispensational premillennialism operates under is that the church is basically a parenthetical expression. You don't understand what I mean by parentheses? Parentheses, whenever you read something that's inside parentheses, where does the content start? Right after that open parenthesis, everything in this site, everything in here is an expression that's going back and explaining something over here, but that explanation starts with the parenthesis and where does it end? With the other one, right? You never see a one-sided parenthetical phrase, right? It's enclosed. And in one way, that is the way the church is. The church had an open th opening parenthesis. Where was that? And when was that? It was in Jerusalem. And when was it? On the day of Pentecost. That's the opening parenthesis. Where's the closing parenthesis? Okay, the end of the age, the fullness of the Gentiles. Say delight. It's the rapture. So from Pentecost to the rapture, there's the church age. God takes his church, he takes it to where we're going to be with Jesus for all time. And then what begins to happen? That is where God then begins to work specifically on the redemption of Israel. That's the, that's the time of the tribulation. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, when you get to chapter four, see, all we've been reading about, and I realize it's been a few weeks now since we were actually in the text, but you, when you remember chapters one, two, and three. Who's Jesus primarily speaking to in chapters one, two, and three? He's, he's talking to churches, right? Who's he talking to from chapters four to 19? Is the church around? The term is never used. In fact, the church doesn't even show up again until you get to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's in chapter 19. Who becomes the focus in chapters 4 to 19? The Jews. Ground zero for most of the action is where? It's in Jerusalem. There's 144,000 witnesses. Who are they? 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. You have the two witnesses that are going to be present. Where are they ministering? Jerusalem. Everything revolves around that. 
So who lives in Jerusalem? Jews. And so that's why it has a Jewish flavor. When you read about the millennial kingdom, what aspects do you find in the millennial kingdom? Where do people worship? In Jerusalem, on Temple Mount, in a huge temple that has never been built. What happens at that temple? It's got an altar. So what's happening on that altar? They're sacrifices. In fact, the distribution of land is very specific and very different. If you look at a, at a map of the tribes in your, if you, from your, in your Old Testament, it is radically different than the layout of the land in the Millennial Kingdom. Andrew? Sure. Okay. Right. What did the sacrifices accomplish before Christ? They for they were the shadow of the substance. They pointed to right Christ's sacrifice once for all, for everybody, he's sanctified forever, right? So the idea is, is that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to Christ, where they were going to be ultimately fulfilled. The sacrifices in the millennial kingdom are going to point back. Again, are the people going to be covered? Are they going to be made right? Are they going to be made holy by those sacrifices? No. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. He says it's going to be like a, a remembrance, just like communion is for us. We're going to have communion today. We're going to remember the Lord's death. And we do that until he comes. For those people, and again, remember, that's why when you look at that and you go, all right, for us, boy, and you know what? When we went through, when we studied Ezekiel, that was a real stumbling block for some folks. That was a real stumbling block. Why? Because for us, we look at that, we've never been under that system of animal sacrifice and we know from the book of Hebrews that it was never effectual. What the people were doing, they were taking God at his word by faith. That that animal is taking my place so that God's judgment isn't going to land on me. Pointing again to Christ, ultimately where it was going to be ultimately fulfilled. The same thing happens in reverse in the millennial kingdom. Because the millennial kingdom is primarily about Israel. 
That is where God is going to fulfill his promises to the nation. Richard. Yes, they have. And then they're be well, here's the question. So here's the thing with that. Israel has had to, Judaism has had to come up with something to replace the sacrificial system. Why? They don't have a temple. They don't have a place to do those sacrifices. So they've come up with something else. Emphasis on they have come up with something else. What's the problem with that? Because who establishes what will satisfy God? He does. And so again, um, that's the danger. And by the way, we're not exempt from that either, right? We come up with our own little things to where, you know what? God's just going to have to be happy with this. God's going to have to be satisfied with this. And that is danger Will Robinson territory, right? Okay, we've already talked about there's not two means of salvation. Men have never been saved by works. Ever. 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 No one has been able to work their way into heaven. Okay, questions up to this point. All right, okay, Gunner. You're right, I really don't want to get into that right now. But we can, we can cross that bridge. We can cross that bridge later. Lori, did you have a hand up? Or Brian? Yeah, the supersessionism, the church now inherits the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament, including the land promises. That's the idea. But we don't have promises to the I can understand how they, would, they could stump, come to think something like that because as the centuries go by, you know, nations don't come back. But we live post-1948. And so um, all of a sudden, there's a nation again in their land. And you can start to, to see, I don't know if it makes it that it's more uh, likely that, that those, then, those promises could then be fulfilled. Um, all right, here at our church, we hold to dispensational premillennialism. Okay, Alan? I just want to say those land promises are spiritualized. Yeah, they are. And a lot of things get spiritualized in, you know, in that other way of looking at things. <coughs> Excuse me. We, will hold, we hold to the, to the premillennial view. Uh, we maintain a distinction between Israel and the church. And we are pre-trib. 
There's nothing, there's no tripwire that has to occur before Jesus can come back. Uh, when I told Charles that I was going to be talking about the rapture two weeks ago, his comment was, wouldn't it be cool if nobody showed up? <laughs> so, um, now, none of these systems, I, I don't want to use the word bulletproof, all of the systems have got something that they can point to that would say, you know, the scripture says this. The preterists would look at uh, 70 AD and, as the fulfillment because Jesus said, this generation shall not pass away before these things happen. So when they take this generation, they interpret that as the generation that was living at the time. And that's, how they, that's, that's what they base on. And everything else, that's kind of the primary filter, and everything else gets filtered through that. The, if you have a more allegorical means of interpreting Scripture, it's not about the words, it's about the meaning behind the words. Alan just used a term, you know, the, you know things being spiritualized. There can be a lot of spiritual applications. But that doesn't mean that the primary meaning of the text is spiritualized. Does that make sense? So when you have a more spiritualized interpretation of things, then that can get the same, you know, it can, it can say one thing, but it really means something else. And so... Um, and again, there's a number of scriptures that they would point to to say, you know, that's why, this is why we believe this way. So again, be gracious, study, come to a conclusion, own the conclusion, but be gracious, be forbearing. This is a family discussion. There's a lot of good, godly men on different sides of the equation. And ultimately, what it comes down to is, where do you put the most weight, and then everything feeds off of that, Brian? It is not. Part we would be non-supersessionistic. That's and that's I. That's that's why when you get yeah you got to keep going. I probably could have done that better. I actually, all right. For the tape, for the tape, I definitely could have done that better. Right, that's right. All right, all right, it's three after. The music team had all kinds of sound problems today. 
Um, okay, on the back of today's handout, there is an eschatological timeline as a dispensational premillennialist would understand it. Does that make sense? So, when it comes to what we will teach here, that's the timeline. So you have the rapture, you have while the church is raptured, during the tribulation period, you have the marriage supper of the lamb and you have the judgment seat of Christ. You have a seven year tribulation that is primarily about Israel and judgment on the unbelieving nations. The onset of the tribulation is the Antichrist signing the covenant with Israel. He breaks that covenant at the midpoint in the last three and a half years. Bad, you don't want to be there. Second coming comes after the great tribulation. At that point, the beast and the false prophet, who we haven't gotten to yet, but we will, are thrown into the lake of the fire. Satan's bound, and there are no more living unbelievers. So when you go into the millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom is peopled by, populated by, surviving believers from the great tribulation, and then resurrected saints. Now those resurrected saints are not going to be able to populate. That is going to be the believers who have survived the great tribulation. And over a thousand years, they're gonna have kids and a number of those kids, a lot of those kids, are going to reject Christ. So at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan gets loosed, he leads one last big rebellion. That is put down and then you have um, the resurrection of the unbelieving dead, the great white throne of judgment, and unbelievers get their ticket to the lake of fire. Jesus, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we go into the eternal state. That is the heaven of heavens, is that one. All right, questions, it's five after. Alan. Well, yeah, please don't be confused about that. I'll guarantee you if you stay, if you come here, you won't. We actually put a pretty good emphasis on the Old Testament here. Why? Because that's where it starts. Well, not only it starts, that was Jesus' Bible. And frankly, if it's good enough for Jesus, it better be good enough for us. So... Again, oh, we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that the day is coming and we hope it is soon when you will come for us as your church. You're gonna take us to be with you forever, never again to be parted, and that you are going to redeem Israel you are going to take them from where they are now and redeem them 
as individuals, but also as a nation. And you are going to bring judgment on those who continue to rebel. And we thank you that your wrath, that your holiness, that your justice are just as good, just as pure, just as noble, just as desirous as your love and grace and your mercy. You're not gonna sweep any sin under the carpet. It is going to be dealt with. And it's gonna be dealt with finally and permanently. And again, how we look to that day. We love you. We're so grateful that you have redeemed us, that you have reclaimed us, that you've bought us out of the slavery to sin and to death where we were held in bondage. And now you've made us to where we're joint heirs with Jesus. A blessing that is so far beyond comprehension. Help us to live for you. Help us to love you and adore you and be devoted to you in every way we can. You are worthy. Oh Lord, help us to give you our best. In Jesus' name, amen.